help us to just taste and know your love in a fresh way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, our text is from Revelation 2. We're still standing. <laughs> Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, and your faith, your service, and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teachings, she misleads my servants into sexual morality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways." I will strike her children dead, then all of the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over all the nations." That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one to the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let me grab a seat. Nothing like a reading from Revelation to put us all in a good mood on Sunday. Um, so if you've been here the past bit, we are in this series called Cross-Shaped Sexuality. Um, and also, this is the first Sunday of Lent. And uh, I, when I was preparing this series, the reason why we're doing this series is because we've been preaching through Mark verse by verse. And our aim, as we've done so, is to pause when Jesus is either, when the gospel either hits on something that it seems like it's pretty core to our values. So we've had series on mission and community. And, uh, and also to pause in prayer. Uh, we also pause when it seems like Jesus is running into things that are filled with tension in our culture. So we had a big series on racial justice and racial reconciliation, and now one on sexuality and marriage. I hesitated as I was crafting this with how this would run into Lent, because I was fearful that it would cheapen Lenten season. And Lent is a season of prep for the cross and resurrection. It's a season the global and historical church has participated in to anticipate what Christ is giving us via the cross and resurrection. But I ultimately decided to keep these last two sermons from the sexuality series end with Lent because I think it stands with what we do with Lent. Lent is a season of repentance, of contemplating our dependence on Jesus, of great sacrifice and learning to practice generosity. So in my mind, it's kind of fitting that uh, our engagement with our sexual ethics and our marriage and sexuality is in tune with a posture of humble dependence, a posture of repentance, and a posture of sacrifice. And after this series, Jesus talks about the rich young ruler in Mark 10. So we'll keep talk, talking about uh, money, which is another area that we're learning to hold our hands open. And I think by leading into the cross, we trust that God is gracious to all of that. And yet it is a challenging, uh, challenging topic. So let me kind of just sum up another, in other words, kind of um, my working presumptions through this series. One of them is that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. I'm beginning with the presumption I'm committed to Jesus. I want to know what he has to say about everything. 
I believe he rules heaven and earth. He rules our bodies. He rules marriage and sexuality. I want to know what he has to say about that. I'm talking to you because you're at a church we're doing this. I realize some church philosophy is like we're seeker sensitive and trying to talk to uh, people who don't follow Jesus on Sundays. I don't really preach like that. I'd rather invite you. If you don't follow Jesus yet, you're welcome to the family table where we have a family conversation about what it means to follow Jesus. I want to give you an accurate description about what we're trying to say yes to. And maybe over time you'll want to say yes to that too. That said, if I was sitting with a person who wasn't following Jesus, I would not bat lead off with my conversations about sexuality and marriage. I'd rather talk about some other things and eventually get there. So if you aren't a believer yet, this uh, series could potentially rub you the wrong way. If you're not decided yet, and I think about that especially with youth, with my teens in the room, which I said on the first week, this series is for you all. And I don't know, you know, you all are still working out who you want to be. And so I, I pray that this is a description of who God is and a recognition of how gracious and loving he is. And I hope that it would make you want to say this to Jesus one day uh, over time, or at least to have that conversation that when he wants all of you, including your sexuality, he does because he loves you. And I still believe that. Um, another working presumption is that through Jesus' authority, the Bible is the foundation for Christian beliefs and practices. I think Jesus is, has, like any authority figure we know, they oftentimes delegate their authority, do they not? They're like, they don't run at all. True authority figures delegate it to people underneath them. Uh, I think it is a Christian belief that has been the case everywhere the gospel has spread. There's a trust that Jesus has delegated that authority to his first witnesses. Because it's not Jesus in general, a universal Jesus. It is a Jesus who lived and breathed from Nazareth. And he went around and he taught. And he has a real life and real time and space and history. And so everything about Christianity hinges on people who saw that happen. And then they passed it on, and we only have what we have because those people died to write these words, copy them, circulate them, and pass them on. And, and we only are here now because they faithfully did that. So it's not like, let's Bible thump people. It's like, we trust Jesus. And the more we trust Jesus, we realize, man, Jesus loves Scripture. And we should, uh, if we want to follow Jesus, we should do that too. And so I say this, though, because if this series may more than others feel like a rub if you have some tension with scripture. And I, it's okay. I, I don't think Jesus freaks out about that. I don't freak out about it either. But you may notice if this has rubbed you the wrong way, it might be because you have tension with scripture, likely because the church has used scripture for a lot of harm and mainly in this area <laughs> in our culture, one of the main areas. So that's okay. That's part of the, the forgiveness that God will have for us as we engage in this process. But I just want to name that. So if you're feeling the rub, just ask the question, is this because I don't like scripture on this? If so, Jesus is not surprised. He can sit with you in that. Same with me. But that may be an area where you may feel some rub. And from those working presumptions, here's kind of a summary of where we've kind of been. I'm kind of using different language for this every week so it doesn't feel dry. I've been trying to show you that Christian sexual ethics are grounded in God's grace, creation, and the cross. It's all grace. We only exist out of God's grace. His love flows out from the Trinity, and he's like, I want this love shared and invited. I want to make people to share this love with and invite them in on. That creation was out of love. We don't start with Genesis 3. We start with Genesis 1 and 2. His love is beautiful and good, and he wants us to be a part of that with him, to engage a relationship with him, to rule creation with him, and sex and marriage is a part of that. And so when Jesus talks about sex and marriage, about the kind of sex and marriage he's for, he leapfrogs all of human history to go to Genesis 1 and 2 and say, in the beginning, this is what it was really about. 
this is what sex and marriage is for, and I invite you to receive my grace to return to that. And doing so in a world marred with sin is going to be facing the cross, that Jesus had to carry a cross to forgive our sexual sin among lots of other sin, and he did it for free out of love. And now, because of that, we get to bear our cross with him and with the power of the Spirit to let him slowly help us have sexual integrity because it's hard. And so, in light of that, we have two ways I've tried to argue and show to pursue sexual integrity, either in marriage or in singleness. We're not in this battle alone. We're with the Spirit. The church is helping with that. Scriptures are pointing us to that. And when I say integrity, I mean being true to who we really are. God's created beings. We are not our own people. We are not self-explanatory. We are image bearers of God. As image bearers, we are reflections of God, which means we don't just start from scratch. We receive that from Jesus, that identity, and then we receive forgiveness in Jesus. He gives us the spirit, and so who we really are are God's redeemed children in whom the spirit dwells. And being true and having integrity is not being integrity with our ultimate desires, but with what God has said about us as his redeemed children, body and soul. So that's kind of the baseline of what I've been trying to show you. And today, then, gets into a tough topic about the threat against our sexual integrity. Scripture, in light of what it wants to point to as healthy sexual integrity, also identifies a threat against it that we should be warned of. This gets to our brokenness and weakness, and of course, the church's harmful response to that weakness. Many people who have left the church have left because of a toxic blend of legalism and hypocrisy, some of the worst of which have been with regard to sex and marriage, where people have been where I'm standing, slam people over the head with the Bible about their sex lives, and then run off and do the very thing we told them not to do, but then receive immaculate grace and forgiveness so that after a brief time away from the pulpit, we can march right back up here and do it again. Right? You're like, hey, I think I'm going to give up on that. I can understand. Yet, the scripture's still there. Don't throw out a good thing because sinful people do bad things with good things. That's normal. Sinful people do bad things with good things. That doesn't mean we throw out the good thing. Usually, you go back to the good thing, and it will tell you about the bad thing that you saw. <laughs> You go back to the good thing, and it'll be like, yeah, it's not good when preachers are hypocritical about, about sex or about other things and judgmental about it. And so that's what I'm trying to do. And so the text we're, or the uh, passage we're gonna, or the point we're going to talk about today is the threat against, uh, what is the threat? What are we called to do in response to the threat? How will God respond to our response and the practical application for the church? So what is the threat? This is where revelation comes in. Now, revelation... Man, I must be a sucker for some pain. Let's have a conversation about sex, and let's preach from Revelation. And like, oh my gosh, what are we trying to do here? Hey, right, man, I like to go. I like to be clear. I like to go right at the stuff we want to avoid. Uh, I personally want to do that, and I want to invite you into it. So, Revelation. Before we get into the kind of this passage here, um, it's it's written in a genre of literature that is not that is weird to us. It's the, it's we don't we don't have that genre. We have letters. So when we read a New Testament letter. We're like, oh yeah, I can see this. He's writing a letter to this people. We do not have apocalyptic literature that tries to describe that behind the scenes, God is in charge and running the show. And that though this world looks like he's not running the show, 
Revelation is like, it's, a, it's the revelation. It's like, let me pull back the curtain and show you that Jesus is really winning. And in the end, Jesus wins. And though there's lots of persecution and challenge and temptation and lies, let me pull back the curtain to reveal to you that in the end, Jesus will win. And so you're going to want to stick with him and hold on and not fall to temptation. That's revelation in a nutshell. And there's lots of wild cartoon imagery that you're like, that's weird and what's going on there? But that's the, the, the thrust of it. And so it's actually remarkably relevant to today, even though, not in the way that you often would hear it read. Not like, oh man, that thing's the mark of the beast, and let's find the codes that reveal that Jesus is going to come back in like 2019, and oh gosh, we missed that date, maybe he'll come back in 2025 instead. No, that's not what it's about. But it's very relevant in that we also, like the churches in Asia Minor, face real temptation to walk away from Jesus due to persecution, or mainly due to the, uh, a temptation to find social and economic security by avoiding kind of challenges from the surrounding culture. So in this, he's writing to different churches. One of them is in Thyatira, and Jesus has words for them. In Revelation 1 and 2, there's seven churches Jesus has words for. One of them is to a church in Thyatira, and I think it's really important what he has to say here. So this is what he says. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. There's always a, a, a characteristic about Jesus for each one of these. Many of them are related to Thyatira. I think Thyatira worked with bronze or something like that. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Jesus, when you see like your boss start with like the positive and then hit you with the challenge, you got that from Jesus. That's how he gets down. He's like, listen, Thyatira, you are killing it. I know all your deeds. You're really good at loving. You got good faith. You serve and persevere really well. Your quality of your love is outstanding. And the quantity. You're doing even more of all the good stuff than you did when I first saw you. Affirmation. So he's affirming them for all the good things. Love, charity, justice. They're good people. They got good faith. And then he's like, now that we have established an affirmation, we have a challenge here. Nevertheless, also, and also, I have this against you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants, Christian people, into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. So there's kind of a figure here. He calls her Jezebel. In the Old Testament, Jezebel was a woman from another country, another religion that married a king, and it was not good, and she led uh, people of Israel astray when she married that king. And he's saying, this, uh, there's a, a false teaching, a false prophecy among my people in Thyatira, and this is the content of that false prophecy. You good people that are full of life and, uh, love and faith and perseverance, you're being led into believing that I, Jesus, am okay that you are in the habit of practicing sexual morality and idolatry uh, with food. And so he's like, I would like you to repent. I'm giving your time to repent. She does not want to repent of this. So Jesus has tried to help plead with this person, this, uh, uh, this false teaching, to repent of it, but they don't want to. And it's about sexual morality or pornaya. So this is serious. When a lot of times I think in our culture, if we have all the love and faith and good deeds and perseverance, we may think, oh, maybe that will kind of redeem if there is 
pornaya going on, if there's sexual morality going on. I think this verse is challenging because it's like, that's all good, and also God really also cares about sexual morality. So the Greek word behind this is porneia, which is really important, porneia, really important because uh, it's hard to know what we're talking about here. And so just in case you're like, man, I don't know how serious this is. We're about Revelation here. What about the rest of the Bible? Let's just see other places in the New Testament that talks about porneia. Here's Jesus himself. Jesus went on. We read this back in the fall. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is within, from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Pornaya, first on the list. Theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person, make a person impure, unclean. This is Jesus. And we have Paul. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Then he has some distinctions. What are the acts of the flesh? Acts of the flesh looks like this. First one, pornaya, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this, who make a habit of this is who they are, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, pornaya, whatever it is, will defile you. Paul says it is an act of the flesh that is in contrast with God's reign. Where God reigns, he is not for pornaya. More stuff from Paul. This is from 1 Thessalonians. It is God's will. What's God's will for my life? Paul has got you covered. That you should be sanctified, that you should avoid pornaya. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So again, you have the Holy Spirit in you. His aim is to manifest that in your body by making true on the outside what Jesus has already declared and given to be true on the inside. You as a Christian are God's temple, meaning it's your body is the intersection of heaven and earth where God lives. You're like, well, God's everywhere. Yes, he's everywhere, but his animating, life-giving presence is, is, is effective in a different kind of way in Christian people. And he's saying... To have integrity as a Christian is to let that spirit be reflected in your uh, bodies and how you engage with sex life. It's God's will, and God takes it seriously if we are purposely going against that. And so this begs the question, how would, this is pretty serious, right? Can you agree from those texts this is pretty serious? Pretty serious. How would we then go about determining what that word means? It's pretty ambiguous. How we determine what it means. A scholar who's done the most work on this that I trust a lot, his name's Kyle Harper. I'm going to borrow from him a little bit here. This next little bit is a little bit technical, but we better fight through it. Um, he is, I don't think he's a Christian. He doesn't write from a Christian perspective. He is a, um, he is at, uh, at, I think, University of Oklahoma, writes on classics and other Greek texts, and he says this about Pornea. Um, indeed, because any translation so vague as sexual immorality, for example, inevitably threatens to become little more than a cipher for the interpreter's own views, it is imperative we try to recover the content and connotation of the term in different texts and contexts. 
It's a way of saying when you have an ambiguous word that carries a lot of weight, you're like, oh, I can tell what that might mean. It likely means whatever sexual ethics I already have that makes sense to me. And he's saying that's probably not the best way to determine what it would mean. We better go find out how the original word would have been used and what they would have meant from that. And let that then determine how we respond. So Scott McKnight says, he's a New Testament scholar, if you double-click on this term, pornia, for a definition, it'll send you to Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18, that's where everybody's Bible reading plans go to die. <laughs> right around now, late February, you're like, man, I think I'm out. <laughs> it was fun to Exodus 20, but I'll see you around. Next January, I'll make a, go- I'll make a goal. We'll, we'll do Genesis and Exodus together, and then we're going to bounce out. But Leviticus matters a lot. Jesus' most often quoted verse is from Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's in the same section of ethical commands. There's one, Leviticus 18 is a bunch of a long list of them. And the base is prohibitions against incest, bestiality, same-sex sexuality, sexual ethics, and uh, sex with uh, anyone that's not your spouse. That's uh, Leviticus 18's summary. You can read it on your own later on. Hammer through this. Kyle Harper sums it up this way. There was, to be sure, a stable, standardized packet of sexual norms carried by the religion, he's talking about Christianity, wherever it insinuated itself. Virginity was the ideal, marriage acceptable, sex beyond, marriage sinful, same-sex, eros, categorically forbidden. And he puts it like this, here's the affirmation. All of the world's diffuse, erotic energy was to be cramped into one frail, sacred union. This book is a massive page-turner, just describing, in his mind, the first sexual revolution, starting with the church, as the church grew, what impact it had on Greco-Roman sexual culture. He's a historian. He offers no pastoral insights. He's not saying what the church should or shouldn't do. He's attempting to describe reality there. And this is his conclusion. He says it like this, too. The level of importance. In the early church, sexual morality was not baggage, afterthought, or accident. It was the plane on which Christians tried to live in the world, but not of it. That was his emphasis, and my font chose to make it not his emphasis. It was in the world, not of it, which is why adapting this sexual morality to the modern age has proven as simple as extricating a taut thread from a spider's web, trying to emphasize that this was not only how the church spread uh, its message, including its sexual ethics, but that it was central in doing so. And when we as a church now, 2,000 years later, choose not to, we are running against a massive thread that might, maybe, the church was always wrong on that. If so, we better be real slow to have made that choice, which is what I'm trying to, I'm submitting this to you. I'm trying to demonstrate to you on a topic that we have ducked and avoided as the American church, either ducked and avoided or being so harsh and hard and mean about that we, that we are kind of like floating around in it. I have tried as a pastor over the last 13 years, to try to take really seriously what those commands might say. And I'm just submitting what I'm finding and inviting you to wrestle with me. If this rubs you the wrong way, you're not condemned, you're not kicked out, I'm not telling you you're not a Christian. I'm just saying, I think this is what's there. Will you consider it with me? Wrestle with me for a bit and let's see what happens. So I think that's what it is. Anything outside of marriage, and Jesus would say, lust, fantasizing, and deliberately letting our brains go there would be in in tune with this. Any of that sexual activity outside of uh, covenantal, lifelong 
a sexual co committed union between a man and a woman would be what Jesus would call pornia. Woo! How we doing? I like you all. I love you all. You love me too. Um, this is what, please, please do. Um, so what are we called to do? Jesus says, I've given her time. He's patient to repent. But she does not want to repent of her pornea, her sexuality. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. So you will read into this whatever you kind of currently already see about God. If you're the type that see God as kind of controlling and judgmental and angry, you're going to find this bed of suffering deal and make the suffer intensely deal. If you are a guilt-ridden person, that you'll, you'll take that on yourself. If you're very frustrated with the hypocrisy and judgmentalism, you will, out of defense of the, the victims that will be harmed, be, take offense to this. But I want you to see God's heart here. He's waiting patiently and giving time. He's waiting and hoping they will turn. He wants to be chosen with your whole self, including your sexuality, and he wants you to want to want this. I'm giving you time to make this choice. She doesn't want to. It's not accidental. It is, thank you for letting me know I deliberately don't want to do what you want. And God's judgment is not, I will now inflict the punishment. It's written in that way to demonstrate God's authority. But in the scriptures, the judgment is regularly a handing over to your choice. If you cut against the grain of creation, of grace, of the Holy Spirit, of the gospel, it harms you. And I will hand you to the choice you wanted, which will hurt you. And if you have been a person, including me, who has made choices that are in, against God with regard to sex, you would know it hurts. It hurts you when you come to grips with it. It's painful. And you think you're over the pain, and then it'll come back up later. God's got grace for it. There's no, there's no judgment there, but it hurts. And so don't read this as God's a mean God who's going to punish me. It's God, will, God wants you to want to choose him, choose to love him. And if you choose not to, he's going to give you that choice, which is not him, and that's where pain is. So hear God's heart of grace for this and for the whole series, not the, the heart of, of anger and patience. And that gets to this really, really important distinction that I think the church has missed, I think Christians have missed. There's deeply wanting to resist this, porneia, but struggling. You make mistakes. Versus a stubbornness, a self-affirming, unrepentant, repetitive engagement with porneia. There's a difference there. And here's where the church has really messed up. We've treated those categories the same. So you come with a struggle. You come with a slip. You found yourself trapped You've made some bad choices. You don't know how to get out of it. You're in a relationship you're stuck in. You're looking at porn and you wish you weren't looking at it. And you are struggling and you venture out to share and the church hammers you. That is, that is not what the heart of Revelation 2 is or Galatians 5 is or Mark 7 is. There is an instant graciousness and embrace. I'm so sorry, brother and sister. That sounds painful. God is not for that, and we are for you, and we love you, and God loves you. That's not who you are. Don't buy into the accuser's voice that says that's who you are, that you are your sexual failures and brokenness. That top person is immediately embraced. 
the warnings are against the self-affirming, unrepentant, this is who I want to be and am. I am on a deliberate path to deliberately engage in pornai because I want to. Jesus says, will you consider otherwise? No, I don't want to. I want this. That's who the warnings are for. That doesn't mean we get to hammer those people, but the seriousness of the warning is for the person who doesn't want to struggle. If you want to want to struggle, it's a different kind of grace and embrace. There's still grace if you're self-affirming unrepentant, but it's a grace that comes with, with a warning, which we'll talk about soon. But this is, I need to name this now so that you don't run ahead of the track of accusation and judgmentalism and rejection of God because it feels like he's not gracious. The gra- if you are like struggling repetitively, even your whole life, man, he's got grace for you. There would be a difference, just as an example, a difference between a person who looks at porn every day. There's people like this. Porn is terrible, awful. If someone looks at porn every day but hates it, desperately wants to stop and feels trapped. They started that choice when they were 10, and now they wish they could not do it again. Desperately want to quit. They can't do it. We are living in a society that has a phone all the time. Can't get away from it. That person is worthy of lots of grace. Okay, let's try something new. Let's leave behind that. Let's start today. Let's start today of holiness. What's the day look like? Let's win the next hour. We are on your side. God's on your side. You are not condemned. Versus the person that says, yeah, I look at porn every couple weeks. Seems like it's just the way it is, you know? I'm boys will be boys, and, you know, it's kind of it's kind of normal, and it's kind of an outlet and kind of release for me, kind of release stress. I manage it. I don't do it any more often than that. Every couple weeks, I do it. That's just the way it is. That person looks at it less often, but they're self-affirming, they're unrepentant. I'm devoted to become the kind of person that will look at porn today I die. There's a different kind of warning there. I'm trying to name a distinction. Will you follow me into it? Lots of grace for the warnings. So how does God respond to our repentance? This verse will be fine, won't it? Verse 6-9 of Corinthians. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Again, what lens are you seeing these verses in? If you feel accused, you will run to verse 9 and 10. Oh gosh, I have done this. I won't inherit the kingdom of God. If you are really angry with the church for the harm they've done to sexually broken or sexually confused people or people that are just different than us on sex, you will also run to those verses and hate this. You will maybe reject God because of this, reject scripture because of this, or make this say something that I don't think it says. But I want to read it through verse 11. Such is what some of you who are reading this letter were. You were the kind of people who were sexually immoral. You were engaged in pornea on purpose, consciously and intentionally. Including, it says, men who have sex with men. I think those words actually mean that. I don't have time to deal with all the reasons why I think that. We can do that maybe on the podcast. But I think, it's, I think it really is saying that choice. And I think he's boiling it down to males with males in these verses. But this is how, this was a pattern of your life. This was your habitual choice on purpose. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. That's who you are now. Do you think 
about what we know with the brain and how it forms habits in your brain. If you make a habit regularly of engaging in sexual immorality, if you were a Corinthian person, you habitually went and had sex with women at, at the brothel down there, which is a common thing in Corinth. Do you think you just shut that off? Let's say you did that for a decade. You came to Jesus when you're 30. From 20 to 30, you sleep with the brothels, uh, with, with your slaves, with, with uh, women at the, uh, at the brothel, at the temple. That was a common thing in Corinth. Suddenly you come to Jesus, and God says this about you. Does that temptation and the memories of it go away? No, man, you're human. You know what it's like. They struggle with that. And so we can read verse 9 and 10 and say, oh, man, uh, God hates sexually broken people, people who make a sexual sin, uh, people who have committed adultery, and uh, gay people. I want to read that and say, the little Corinthian church was filled with gay people and with people who engaged in sexual morality and with people who, were, who had been adulterous and with people who probably abused, abused people. That's filled with them. I'm not talking about a mega church of like 10,000 and we have a handful. I'm saying you might have 50 to 100 people in Corinthian church and a bunch of them had had the habit of this various array of sexual brokenness. That is grace. He's saying, I'm not counting that against you. You still struggle? You still have a temptation? You still slip? I'm not counting this against you. He's writing this because they probably struggle. When Paul writes a letter... He's writing in response to a problem. They, they probably are struggling with it. And he's saying, that's not who you are anymore. You were defiled in Jesus' words, but Jesus has washed you. You were made unholy by those choices, but Jesus has made you holy again. You were set in the wrong because of those choices, but Jesus has made you right. You were one who did not have the spirit, but now you do. That is not who you are anymore. So now, please, be who you are. Let the Spirit come out and show the world and yourself that you are, are now a new person. You don't have to do that anymore. There's a freedom there if we would receive it. I think we've been so scarred by the abuse of this that we don't want to receive that. But I am in verse 11. He's talking about me. I hate talking about this in church, but the fact is, I hate that this is my story, but my story is this. My story was this. My conduit into God's grace was through sexual brokenness. And I suddenly call a pastor who I did not know. And I barely eke out a like, I think I'm trapped. I need help. And that led to a flooding of God's mercy. Wow, I can be new now. Was I perfect after that? No, I was not. But it was a new, a new life. And six months later, against my will, I'm going to Bible college. And 15 years later, why am I doing this now? I wake up in the morning and I'm like, how in the world did I get here? That I have to stand from people to talk about this. But I'm, I am verse 11. That's what I was. I'm not like that. I don't have to do that anymore. Is it perfect? No. But that's, that's the path we're on now. That's grace. And I would venture to say many of you have been there too. And if you weren't, you probably have some degree of sexual brokenness. Maybe you've been a sexual victim. And that feels like it's a stain. And they harmed me. That teenage boy shouldn't have done that to me. He harmed me. And yet, he's saying, you're not marked by that anymore. You don't have to be defined by that shame. You are new. You've been washed, you've been made holy, you've been justified, and you may struggle, but it has not changed that the Spirit of God is in you, that God loves you, and you are safe with him forever. So now let's start today to be who you are now. I'd have to wonder where the church would be with our secular culture and with the gay community if we would have been like this. I have to wonder. 
Would they like it? Not everybody. Because not everybody likes Jesus. Jesus can say this perfectly if you're like, no, I'm good. And people like, like Paul. Man, Paul was, he's not, you would imagine, this is not some white dude sitting in a nice tenure professor job who's rich and just like, you know, let me write about this sexual brokenness here and hate all these sinners. This dude is in prison, has been in prison for seven years of his, of his adult life, dies an early death, gives up his life to chase people down and share the gospel with them, and writes letters begging them to be true to the gospel that they have received. That's who Paul is, man. He's a Jewish person. He's not a white dude who's, like, confident and rich and privileged. He gave all that up to do what his job is, to be a missionary, a pastor, a church planter, and he's writing this so that they would know how much God loves them. I pray that we would hear that heart. But this text has been weaponized, has it not? It's hurt so many people. It has hurt so many people. And I'm saying the interpretation I'm saying now because I listened to a gay man preach on it, and he threw down. Man, I was in tears. Can't sleep in bed. Listen to this dude throw down about how much this verse is given life now because he sees it through verse 11 and not through verse 10. And I pray that we would receive that. How are you, man? So some practical application for the church here. Overwhelming, repetitive grace for the struggling and repentant resistors. Meaning, if that is, if you're tr- wanting to want to resist porneia and wanting to want to be a chaste single person or a chaste married person, and you're struggling with self-control, I hope this is a place you feel like will embrace you, that you will find one soul in here to tell your brokenness to who will look you in the eye and say, I bet that's been hard to carry. You're not alone. I love you. And I'm committed to you. If you come back to me next week and tell me you messed up again, I'm telling you right now I'm committed to you. This church needs to be that. So if someone in this room hears this and ventures to tell you their brokenness, you better respond that way. Or else I don't, like, I don't really want you to be here, frankly. I want this place to be warm and embracing and gracious repetitively to the strugglers. There's many out there. They need mercy, and they better find it here. We cannot be another church that thumps people over the head anymore. This invitation and patience. Likewise, as a gentle, patient, gracious, invitational warning for the self-affirming, unrepentant Christians. This is not the, okay, if you're struggling, grace, but if you're not struggling, we get to fight you now. No, you still are. It's gracious. It's invitational. Will you consider this? I'm reading this. Are you reading this too? I'm concerned. Are you concerned? You're confused still? You're committed? I'm with you anyway. You're still committed. You're still patient. There's an invitational warning, though, that says, reconsider. I'm with you anyway. I'm with you either way. If you're with me, I'm with you. I'm committed to you. I'm not committed to you based on whether or not you follow my sexual ethic. I'm with you no matter what. If you want to be here, I'm with you. I'm inviting you to reconsider. And we have to have this a lot because there's so much confusion in our culture, righteously so, because of how much the church is harmed and then responded to the ongoing harm. It's just like baggage on baggage, man. And so don't be shocked when someone comes in this room and is not where you are. Like, man, I can understand. (laughs) You have good reason to not be where you are. So, but yet, there's a gentle warning. Come back to this text. It's been abused, but it's it's got God's heart for us. He means well when he has these restrictions. And then finally, leave the sexual choices of non-Christians alone. If they don't follow Jesus, don't tell them what to do with their bodies. Please, 
Churches will follow this stuff and be like, oh, I got a great idea. Let's go tell some non-Christians what they should do with their bodies. No, you don't start there. For a non-Christian, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5. He's like, I don't care what kind of pornea people that don't follow Jesus are doing. Leave them alone. I'm concerned about people in the church not doing what they're supposed to be doing. If we do that part, that, the, the non-believer, they'll take care of themselves. So what do we, we have conversations with them, but it's about who Jesus is and what you think about Jesus and why. And let me tell you how Jesus changed my life. Maybe he'll change yours. What would keep you from saying yes to Jesus? Why, what would make you want to say no to him? Oh, that experience will make me want to say no too. Maybe reconsider how you think about Jesus. And if you do then, then we could talk about what Jesus might say for your sex life. But that, when we lead with that, man, that is not how Jesus leads. Jesus is like, come follow me. Come get life from, the, from, the, from living waters. Come receive grace. And from that place, he's like, now go and don't sin anymore. Go and try your best to live out who you are now. Big pillars and frameworks there, but that's my general framework here. And I want to end with the end here, that sexual ethics do not make sense if they're not pointing to the end of all things. So he says to the rest of you in Thyatira, you, to you who do not hold to her teaching and not learn Satan's so-called deep secrets, which is mysterious, what's that about? I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come to the one who is victorious. That word is used all throughout Revelation to say someone who holds tight to Jesus and his will that person gets authority over the nations, which you're like, oh, I don't want that control. He's meaning we get to participate in God's uh, life, or eternal rule over the new heavens and the new earth. We get to join with him as it was meant to be in creation. Sexual ethics and the sacrifice that we're called to embrace with it makes no sense if our only fulfillment and happiness is found in this life. It only makes sense in light of the life to come where we will participate forever with the God who died for us, who made us new, who washed us, who sanctified us, who justified us, and said, you are my holy children. Be who you are now. He's made us new. Let's pray.